Church, for the last couple of months, almost over two months now, we've been studying the life and the faith of Abraham. We've looked at this man and his story from multiple, multiple directions. And I'm just going to recap a few of the things we've done. We've talked about following God even when you don't know what will happen. Following him into the unknown. How the call of God is still on your life even if you've messed up or fallen short. We've talked about creating places of worship and going and returning to those places of worship. We've talked about spreading the gospel, being a blessing that blesses. Loving family, maintaining our faith and wealth in times of ease, not just hardship. We've talked about the difficulty of waiting on God and the fallout when we rush our circumstances and try to control them. We've seen what it looks like to develop a relationship with the God over years and years and how that God over years and years reveals himself more and more to us. We've talked about the power of our names and the way that God sees us and how he names us. And we've seen God setting up the rest of the Bible through this one man and wife, creating covenants and promises to be fulfilled generations and generations later to be a blessing to everyone. Today is our final installment on the life of Abraham. We're going to Genesis chapter 22, and you can actually turn and put your finger there in your Bible if you have that with you this morning. But today is a tremendous way, a final installment of the journey and the life and the life lessons we've been learning from Abraham. To quote my wife one more time, when God says, God does, period. But the story of Abraham in the final chapter this week asks this question. God says, God does, but do you believe it? And that's really the story of Abraham. God promising, God showing up, God talking to Abraham, and do you believe it, Abraham? God says it, he promises it, he's going to do it, but do you believe that he will do it? So today we're going to wrap up this, this over two-month-long series on Abraham, looking at the simple word of faith. And looking at how that looks like in our lives today. But before that, I want to talk to you about a small goat in France. Is that okay? In France, there's a deer or mountain goat called the Dayu. Okay, these are like little things. Like think of like those fainting goats. Like kind of just small and tiny. But there's something very unique about them. They're only found in France. And they're only found in the very steep mountainous foothills kind of of France. The mountainous areas. And there's something very unique about these goats. The unique thing about them is that their legs on one side of their body are shorter than the legs on the other side of their body. And the reason this is is because it helps them navigate the steep slopes that they live on. So they're able to be able to uh, navigate a little bit better and level out as they're trying to traverse these really steep cliffs. It sounds really weird, but it's, it's up there in France. And so there's a tradition, though amongst people that live close to those mountains, is to go out and try to hunt these little goats, these Dayu. And so what they do is they go out usually in pairs. And so that what they do, I've never done this, but I can only assume this is true, is that they go up there, and one of them that's skilled tries to imitate the sound of a Dayu. And they try to sneak up behind them. And they, I'm not going to imitate it because I have no idea what it sounds like. But they're going to go up behind them and try to rah, surprise it and use those noises. And if they do it just right, they surprise the goat and they unbalance it and it rolls down the hill where a partner is there to grab it with a bag. Now, if that sounds particularly unbelievable to you 
or if it sounds very similar to something we do here in the U.S., you're on to something. Because this is the French version of hunting a snipe. How many people have ever hunted a snipe? How many people know what hunting a snipe is? How many people have no idea what I'm talking about right now? Ah, okay, most of our church. Hunting a snipe is a camp tradition that you take your kids and counselors, you sneak out at night, and you tell them about this mystical bird called the snipe. And you talk about how to catch a snipe by clapping your hands together and going and making rah, rah, rah noises. And you take these kids and build this beautiful illustration of catching this bird, and you run around the woods at night trying to catch a snipe, a made-up bird. But the power and the beauty of both the things, to catch a snipe or to catch a dayu, is in the belief of the thing. Now, this, may, this analogy falls apart very quickly, okay? But here's the thing. God is real, and God is powerful. He's not a snipe, he's not a dayu, but your belief in God is a powerful force. You take kids out that know the trick, know the game, there's no fun in it, but you get a fresh cabin of kids like Jim Quirk, and you take them out, me and Jim are going to go snipe hunting this weekend at night, and they have no idea, and you think you're out there, you have the most fun, you tell stories, I still have kids that you tell stories years later of trying to catch a snipe. Powerful things happen when you believe. And today we're talking about the belief of a man. When God says it, God does it, Period. But do you believe it? If you would, you're in Genesis chapter 22. We're just going to read the first two verses today. It says this, Sometime later, God tested Abraham's faith. Abraham, God called. Yes, he replied, here I am. Take your son, your only son. Yes, Isaac, whom you've loved so much. And go to the land of Moriah. Go and sacrifice him as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I will show you. God tests Abraham. You know, the first thing I want to just talk to you about right now is that God will test your faith. Circumstances test your faith. You know, every day you get up, your faith is being tested. There's things in your life that every day you wake up are asking, do you value me more than God? Do you love me more than God? Do you believe me or do you believe God? Do you trust this or do you trust God? Every day your faith is tested. Showing up at church is a test of faith. Reading your Bible and spending time in prayer is a test of faith. How you respond to life in general and the circumstances that come your way is a test of faith. Hearing the call on your life and getting up in the middle of a service or choosing to finally say yes after hearing it multiple times to getting baptized is a test of faith. Will we spend our time and our money and our energy this way or this way? It's a test of faith. Putting into action what you say you believe. Yesterday, uh, Pastor Joe said it, me and my family and Pastor Joe and a couple of others from our church, we gathered in a town close by and we went out knocking doors and talking and looking for opportunities to love people, to introduce them to a Savior that loves them, to maybe share a word about the food pantry or to get a chance to pray. Can I tell you that is a tremendous act and a test of faith. You know, I think it was pretty unanimous when we went around the circle afterwards and we regathered. Almost all of us had a door shut in our face or somebody that said, rudely, go away. And we prepared our hearts for that. But there's that kind of rejection. 
But when we did say yes to that and we went out, tremendous and powerful things happened by going out. Tremendous and powerful things. We had opportunity to pray for people that were sick. We had opportunity to pray for people that had a, a hurting leg or tremors in their hand that they were wishing would go away. Meeting people that had just recently still mourning the loss of a spouse. Somebody that had, even the night before, a friend whose sister had passed away unexpectedly in the middle of the night and grieving that loss. A young family just moved there and was just feeling the stress of unpacking box after box and just feeling overwhelmed and welcoming prayer. Because of that, because of the belief that God will move if we go out and try, amazing and testimony things happen because of it. It's a test of your faith. Sharing your faith is a test. Will you be open about your Sunday life, Monday through Saturday? Will you be the person you are here in church for a couple hours the rest of your week? Are you who you say you are? It's a test of faith. You know, there's some religious people in our faith and others that like to push, to purposely put themselves in situations that test them. But sometimes this looks less like testing their faith and a lot more like testing their self-will. And here's one distinction before we get going much more that I want to make to you is that God tempts us, but our own fallen nature and internal desires tempt us. God will never try to tempt you to do wrong, to sin, and to, to do something against his nature. He, but he will test you and use circumstances to see the qualities of your heart. James 1, 13 through 15 says it this way. Remember when you're being tempted, do not say, God is tempting me. God is never tempted to do wrong, and he never tempts anyone else. Temptation comes from our own desires, which entice us, drag us away. And these desires give birth to sinful actions. And when sin is allowed to grow, it gives birth to death. God testing you, the end result will become life and growth. Testing you. But when you are tempted, the end result is sin and death. If the situation is causing you to fail, and you can say, some of us like to say, we put ourselves in situations like, I can watch this movie, but won't be affected. I, I can drink these substances, but it won't affect my mind. I can be around these type of people or go spend my time like this, and it won't affect me. But those aren't tests of faith. Those are in temptations, things that we're trying to control the things in our heart, the desires in our heart, the, the things that tempt us. Uh, you know, our family is not a, um, we're either all in or all out. We're not a family that can say we're going to portion out a, a cake or a bag of M&Ms. It's either the cake's here and we eat it for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, or it's not in our house. And I don't say, God, why are you tempting with the cake that I bought and put in my fridge? I say, Josh, why did you, why did you put that cake in your fridge? Why did you pack it in your lunch pail and take it to work? You thought you weren't going to eat it? There's a difference between tempting and testing. Testing reveals us to ourselves. Why does God test Abraham? Why does he test us? So Charles Spurgeon says it this way, and I follow this line of thinking. He says that God doesn't test us to reveal us to God because he's God. He knows who you are. Infinite, all-powerful, omnipotent, omniscient God knows who you are. He knows the qualities of your heart. He knows how you're going to respond. God doesn't test you doesn't test me to reveal us to him. 
He tests us to reveal ourselves to ourselves. He tests us to show what we say doesn't match up to what is actually in your heart. And the reason for this is because talk is very, very cheap. But actions show the true qualities of your heart. Henry Morris says it this way about Abraham. He says, God knew, knew what Abraham would do, but Abraham and Sarah and all around them must know that the Lord himself went more to Abraham than even Isaac did. The word here, test in Genesis, it's synonymous with prove or to try. About a year ago, I installed an RO water filter in my house. Went down into the basement, and I I put this thing on the wall and hooked all the tubes up. And basically, all it does is that the water that comes out of your fridge or your spout, it's ran through a filter, right? And I'm an incredible plumber. I can tell you that I took a two-hour job and turned it into a six- or a seven- or eight-hour job. That's the quality of plumber that I am. I can just magically make it go better. And so, but can I tell you, though? that I did not trust my own handiwork. And so after I got it all set up and I ran it through all the stages and had it ready to go, can I tell you that I let it sit, I let it dry, and I came back down and I checked the connections, I checked the pipe, I checked everywhere, I turned it on, put it under pressure to make sure there were no weak points, to make sure that there was no dripping, to make sure that everything under pressure was holding true and as I expected. When God comes and tests you, he's not trying to break you, he's not trying to tempt you, he's not trying to catch you up in a trap. He's trying to show you under pressure, this is who you are. He's trying to reveal who you already are and take away the lies and the deceit that we can put on top of it, the self-deception that we can tell ourselves these things and show you this is who you are. I know that, but do you know that? And so it's not a test to try to pass or fail. It's a test to see, is there weaknesses here? Are there some tubes that need to be clamped down tighter? Are there some nuts that need to be pushed a little bit tighter? See, you can already tell I'm not a good plumber. I don't even know what to say. But God is testing you, proving you, to put you under pressure to reveal yourself to yourself. Genesis 22, 1 through 2, it says, Take your son, your only son, yes, Isaac, whom you love so much, and go to the land of Moriah. Go and sacrifice him as a burnt offering on one of the mountains that I will show you. You know, in the Bible, when something happens for the first time, scholars determine, have determined that there's a certain process that goes along with that. They call this, when something's said for the first time, They've termed that as the principle of first mention. It means this, that when you see a word or something that happens for the first time in the Bible, more often than not, the rest of the Bible will follow what that word did. And so the word test improved for the rest of the Bible. It sets that trajectory. That's the first time we see the word test in the Bible. It sets the trajectory not to catch you up and not to fail you, but to prove and to try and to reveal you. There's a second word, though, in the Bible that this is the first time that we see it. And that word is love. We've been studying the life of Abraham over, 12, or over 10 chapters. We started in Genesis chapter 12 and we're ending in 22 now. And over the course of that time, it's 10 chapters for us. But for Abraham, it's 25, 35, 45-ish years of his life. 
And we've seen the struggle that he's had. We've talked at length about the prayers and about the, the uh, blessings and the promises from God to have a son. We've talked about the deep heartache of a parent not being able to have a child. And finally, after years and years, they finally able to have a kid, Isaac. Can you imagine, after years and years and years, the one thing you can't buy, the one thing you can't take, the one thing, no matter how much land or how good you are in your career or how well accomplished you are, that you can't magically make appear, the one thing that Abraham and his wife Sarah really, really wanted, desired a son, God's now asking to take away from them. Can you imagine that feeling? Take your son, your only son, yes, Isaac, whom you love so much. God doesn't tempt you to sin, but he tests you to reveal your heart to yourself. God asked Abraham for the thing he loved most to see if Abraham, after all of this time, after all of these stories, after all these situations, after all the promises and times of worship, after all of that, does Abraham really, truly believe God? Does Abraham really trust God? Does Abraham really love God the most, even more than his only longed-for son? Now, if you think this is unfair of God, I just want to remind you, there's actually another story in the Bible of a father that's called upon to sacrifice his son. The story can be summarized in one verse and it goes like this, John 3, 16, it says, For this is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. First John 4, 9 and 10 embellishes it a little bit more. It says, God showed how much he loved us by sending his one and only son into the world so that we might have eternal life through him. This is real love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. Isn't it interesting that the first time the word love pops up in a Bible, it's not between a husband and a wife. It's not between a mother talking about her kids. It's not even talking about a career or talking about uh, your love for God or God's love for you. The first time that we see the word love in the Bible is a father talking about his love for the son. And we see this reflected years and years later as God is accomplishing the thing that he promised Abraham years and years ago. And he holds himself to the same standard that he asked Abraham, at what he asked of Abraham. Do you love me? Sacrifice your son. And so God shows in one movement, one moment, and by the willingness of Jesus Christ, as he went with joy to the cross, he shows that he's not willing to hold anything back from you. He's showing that he wouldn't call Abraham to do it, but he himself will go that mile and do that. Do the hardest thing you can imagine. Give up the thing he loves the most because there's nothing that he wouldn't give for you. Nothing he wouldn't do to restore relationship back to him. And so he models the thing it's like the boss that asks you to go do something, but you know they would never clean the toilet or never do that. God's saying, I've asked this of you, but I'm, actually, I'm willing to do it too, Abraham. There's nothing I'll hold back from you. You know, my daughter, she's almost two in about a week. She'll be turning two. 
And when we're in a rush to go someplace, we, we use that car time as meal time. Or if she's getting really loud, we try to pacif- uh, pacify the kids by just throwing food in the back trunk. We just throw it back there. Hopefully it hits somebody in the face and they just eat it and be quiet. And so my daughter's two, the straps on her car seat go around. They clip here and then there's a clip at the, at the waist down here. And so when she's usually had something, she's really into it. It's a two-handed hold kind of thing like this. You give her a juice pouch or a food pouch or whatever, and she's got it like this with a death grip. And so you finally get to your destination, and you want to get out of the car. Well, you, I usually try to take that thing away from her so that I can unbuckle it and pull one arm out and pull the one and the other arm out. But can I tell you that that girl does not trust me at all? Because in her mind, I'm the worst person in the world. And if I take that hot dog or whatever away from her, there's no way she's ever getting it back. So she'll scream and she'll fight and she'll hold on because she does not trust that I'm going to give it back to her. All I'm trying to do is get her unstuck from the car seat so we can get inside. But she's saying, there's no way, Dad. And so she holds on for dear life. And so here God does the same thing to Abraham. Abraham, I'm giving you this thing. But do you trust if I'm asking you to give it back to me, that I'll reward you for it? Or do you think that you have to hold on to it as hard as you can? Do you think that I'm not a good God and that I won't confirm my word to you? Do you think I'm an evil parent that will hurt you? Or do you believe I'm a good father that cares about you, the deepest desires of your heart to bless you, that it pleases me to please you? You know, that's how God speaks about you, that he knows the intimate details of your life, that he, it pleases him to please you, that he wants to make you happy, that he wants to give you desires of the heart. But the gift never exceeds the giver. And so God comes and he asks Abraham, do you want the creation or do you worship the creator? Are you tied to your only son? your well-loved son, your beloved son, the only son you can have that came now for a miracle. Do you trust me? I want you to sacrifice him. God knows your heart and obedience will display it. Not what you say you are, but who you really are. Obedience reveals who controls you, what or who you worship, and what or you really have faith in, what you really have faith in. Obedience is the barometer that you can measure where you're at in your treaty with Christ. Greater obedience, greater discipleship to Jesus. Your test reveals some cracks in your faith. It's also revealing some flaws in your discipleship, in the trust process between you and God. We're going to continue our story and wrap it up just pretty quickly here. Verse 3, it says, The next morning Abraham got up early. He saddled his donkey, took two of his servants with him, along with his son Isaac. Then he chopped wood for a fire for a burnt offering and set out for the place God had told him about. I want to just pause really quick and notice here that Abraham chops wood. He prepares to obey God. Abraham lived in a place that trees were a rare commodity, hard to come by. And he was going to a mountain, a hilly place that would have been even harder to get. And so he gives himself no excuse not to obey God. God didn't tell him, take wood with you. He just said, go sacrifice. But Abraham prepares himself, gives, him no excuse, gives himself no excuse not to obey God. 
Verse 4, it says, On the third day of the journey, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. Stay here with the donkey, Abraham told the servants. The boy and I will travel a little farther. We will worship there, and then we will come right back. Notice that key word that he says, we will. I believe that Abraham fully believed that his, he would have to sacrifice his son. But I also believe that Abraham was replaying the promises from God that many descendants would come through Isaac. And Hebrews says it this way. Hebrews eleven seventeen. It was by faith that Abraham offered Isaac as a sacrifice to God when God was testing him. Abraham, who had received God's promises, was ready to sacrifice his only son, even though God had told him, Isaac is the son through whom your descendants will be counted. Abraham reasoned that if Isaac died, God was able to bring him back to life again. In a sense, Abraham did receive his son back from the dead. This is incredibly powerful faith. Faith that Abraham had not displayed 25, 35, 40 years ago when he gave away his wife, when he got stuck in Haran, when he lied and cheated. And he, he did not have faith in God. But you can see the development of his faith over time in relationship with God. That he had such tremendous faith that he thought he'd have to sacrifice. But God was so powerful enough to return his son to him. So Abram placed the wood for the burnt offering on Isaac's shoulders while he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them walked together, Isaac turned to Abraham and said, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied, we have the fire and we have the wood, the boy said, but where is the sheep for the burnt offering? God will provide a sheep for the burnt offering, my son, Abraham answered. And they both walked on together. When they arrived at the place where God had told them to go, Abraham built an altar and arranged the wood on it. Then he tied his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. You know, I believe that Isaac was willing and submitted to the authority of his father in all of this. Abraham was 100 years old when he had his son. And the verse, that, the word here used for boy or lad is a word that means young adult or young, young, young person. And so I believe that he's had years already, that he could have been 10 to 20 years old. And that he was strong enough to hike three days on foot, to climb a mountain with a load of sticks on his back. I believe that Abraham would have been too old if Isaac didn't want to submit, that he could have run away. I don't have any Bible verses to prove that, but that's just what I believe. I believe that Isaac went as a willing sacrifice, foreshadowing the willingness of Jesus Christ to sacrifice himself for you. I don't believe it was forced. It shows the relationship that Abraham had with Isaac. It shows the faith that they had, him and Sarah had tried to pass on and the faith that Isaac had also received as his own. He was willing to trust the father just as Abraham was trusting the father that it was going to be for his own good. Verse 10, Abraham picked up the knife to kill his son as a sacrifice. At that moment, the angel of the Lord called on him called to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham. Yes, Abraham replied, here I am. Don't lay a hand on the boy, the angel said. Do not hurt him in any way, for now I know that you truly fear God. You have not withheld from me even your son, your only son. Then Abraham looked up and saw a ram caught by the horns in a thicket. It's probably a dayu. And so he took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering in place of his son. Abraham named the place Yahweh Yireh, which means the Lord will provide. 
And to this day, people still use the name as a proverb. On the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. You know, the Mount Moriah, years later, King, Saul, King Solomon builds his temple on Mount Moriah. And some scholars have and, uh, thought through and they say they believe it's possible that Mount Moriah was the same mount or the same area that Jesus was also sacrificed. The story of Isaac not only tells a story of faith of a man that's pursuing God, but foreshadows the forecoming sacrifice that was given for us. The father that was willing to let go of a son because he loved a people. And a son that was willing to walk and to die this render also in the name of love. When God says, God does, but do you believe it? Maybe this feels incredibly hard. Maybe this feels like an impossibly far off story that will never ever affect you. God's never going to ask you to sacrifice your child on a mountain. But can I tell you just a really quick and simple story that requires faith that is the same principle. Do you trust God? About two weeks ago, we, me and my wife were shopping at Target. And we had, a, we had time to go on a date. And so the thing we want to do was shop without the kids around. We could do like some stuff. It was like, woohoo, we can go out and be ourselves and not have to like say no, no, no. Don't push that. Just stop hitting that. Okay. And so it was a great time. We were out shopping. And even better, Target was having some incredible clearances. Woo! My love language, okay? So I'm going to Target, and I'm walking around, and I find this puzzle for my wife. And usually it's 20 bucks, and it's on sale for $6. It's a really cool-looking puzzle. It had an awesome ending, surprise thing in there. I hate puzzles, but my wife loves it. So I showed her this puzzle, and she's like, oh, this looks really cool. I'd like to get this. So we got the puzzle, and she did it, and she loved it. It had this really cool artwork, really good feel, a, really, a surprise ending at the end that you could do some stuff with it. And so she went back, and she got a second, and she got a third one. On the second one, as she's getting about halfway through, she starts noticing some symbols that she hadn't seen on the cover before. Some little stuff like a Ouija board and some other stuff that was uh, magical or sorcery related, and it wasn't harmful, it wasn't bad, but she started getting this impression in her spirit that you're not supposed to do that puzzle. You need to get rid of that puzzle. I want you to throw that puzzle in the trash. And so she's starting to fight herself a little bit with this, as I would or maybe you would. Lord, I just bought this puzzle. It's just a picture. It's nothing. It's not even that bad. It's like it's not even an impression. But you know what? That doesn't matter. Because when it comes to a test of faith, God's not saying justify not obeying me. Do you obey me? In the big and in the small. If I'm asking you to get in a tank of, front of water in front of a bunch of people, will you do it? If I'm asking you to throw away a puzzle, will you do it? If I'm asking you to show up to church in person on time, will you do it? If I'm asking you to share your faith with a coworker or a friend, will you do it? If I'm asking you to spend your money and your time this way, will you do it? doesn't matter if you can justify it. doesn't matter if it's right for them or wrong for you. It just matters that God's asking you to take a step of faith. Will you be obedient to the call of God? Amy gathered the two puzzles up, and she, after a little bit of prayer and just talking with me, threw it, threw it away. Not a big deal to maybe you guys. But in that moment, do you know that that was a step of faith for my wife? 
And did you know that God blesses obedience? In that moment, her faith grew. In that moment, my faith was blessed. In that moment, I said, you've given me the conclusion to my sermon on Sunday. But seriously, though, I'm so thankful for my wife because that's her always. I remember stories like that in college of hearing God and being obedient to that. And that's not to applaud her or raise her up, but just to show you it can be as simple as whether or not to do a puzzle. It can be as simple as whether or not, Lord, uh, I want to eat dessert tonight. And you have just an impression of feeling that you're not supposed to do that or you're not supposed to go there, or you're not supposed to do this tonight, or watch that movie, or go with these friends, or go to that trip, or whatever it is. God is speaking to you and calling you, and he is allowing circumstances to test your faith, because your obedience will display your heart. Actions will grow your faith. When you start saying yes to the little things, it grows and grows. Belief in God is displayed by obedience to God. And when your faith is affirmed, it will multiply. So if you can trust God with a puzzle, you can trust God with a bad diagnosis at the hospital. If you can trust God to show up on time to church when you really don't want to and you'd rather be out, you can trust God when finances get tight and you got the bad news from the job. If you can trust God with the little things, you'll be able to trust God with the big things. There's provision for you to grow in it. I want to read two things to you and then we're going to dismiss today. James 2, 19 through 24 says, You say you have faith for you believe there is one God. Good for you. Even the demons believe this and they tremble in terror. How foolish. Can't you see that faith without good deeds is useless? Don't you remember that your ancestor Abraham was shown to be right with God by his actions when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see, his faith and his actions worked together. His actions made his faith complete. And so it happened, just as scripture says, Abraham believed God and God counted him as righteous because of his faith. He was even called the friend of God. So you see, you are shown to be right with God by what we do, not by faith alone. Your obedience grows your faith. Jack Hayward says this, faith is not defined as a perfect character or behavior, but simply believing what God says. Trust that God will provide as he promises. And remember that God's provisions are strategically located along the pathway of faith. As you have faith, God will provide and be true to himself. As you have faith, you will grow in more and more. Saying yes now leads to a greater faith, a greater yes later on. Friends, we've been studying Abraham for two and a half months. And his life lesson can be summed down to a very, very, very simple one-sentence statement. Two and a half months of studying this man, it can be said like this. God does what God says he will do, but do you believe him? God says what God, I'm sorry, God does what God says he will do, but do you believe him? We're going to close. The band's going to lead us out. The altars will be open.
But church, from here, the next step for you of faith is this. Ask yourself this in prayer right now. Ask yourself as we sing this song, are you doing what you know is right to do? Very simple. Don't overcomplicate obedience. Don't overthink it. Are you doing what you know is right to do? The altar team is here and here and in the back of the round table. And if you just want to come up by yourself and pray, just come over to this area or the side area and they'll know to leave you alone and let you pray or worship with the Lord. But the band's going to lead us. Just allow me to pray over you as we go into a time of worship. Father God, thank you, God, that you are one that we can trust. You have never failed us. You have never let us down, God. But you do present many situations that test our faith. Lord, I pray right now, if there's anybody right now struggling, anybody right now that is just feeling, God, like there's that next step, but it's a huge hurdle. It's really hard to say yes, that they've been struggling with it and they know it's right, but they just cannot get over that. God, I pray right now you would give them the motivation. God, I pray you right now you give them the ability to say yes, that they would choose yes right now, Father God. Whether it's big, whether it's small, whether it's baptism or coming to you and beginning a relationship with you for the first time, or throwing away a puzzle, Father, whatever it is, God, thank you, you meet us there. We love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name.